One of the most commonly asked questions of an earlier generation is, do you remember where you were when you received the news that President John F. Kennedy had been shot? I remember it well. It was November the 22nd, 1963. I was sitting in a seventh period English class at St. Joseph Ogden High School when it was reported that President Kennedy had been assassinated as he and Mrs. Kennedy rode in the back of a midnight blue 1961 Lincoln Continental convertible traveling in a motorcade through the Dealey Plaza of downtown Dallas, Texas. Now just suppose with me for a minute that someone discovered an ancient manuscript from A.D. 963, 1,000 years earlier, that predicted the Kennedy assassination in detail. Now, to give you an idea how preposterous this would be, the Byzantine Empire would have still been at its height, Constantinople would have been the capital of the world, and the United States of America had not yet been discovered. So just imagine that some visionary had written a prophetic oracle back in A.D. 963, which predicted that a time would come when a man of great prominence, the head of a yet unknown world power would be riding down the street of a large city in a metal chariot, not drawn by horses, and he would suddenly and violently die from the penetration of his skull by a little piece of metal hurled from a weapon made of iron and wood aimed at him from a tall building, and that his death would have worldwide impact and would cause nationwide mourning. Now, of course, it is absolutely unthinkable for someone to accurately predict such a thing with that kind of detail. And yet in Psalm 22, our text today, we have just such an authentic document, a prophecy, a foreshadowing, a whisper of the name of Jesus that became a reality. So once again, here this weekend, we have evidence of both the Holy Spirit inspiration of the Bible and the deity of Jesus. And anyone who reads Psalm 22 can easily see that the name of Jesus is more than whispered in that psalm. It is shouted. This is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament, and it's the most amazing psalm because it gives us such a clear description of the crucifixion of Jesus. But it was written by David nearly 500 years before the Romans perfected crucifixion as a form of torture and death, and 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified. Listen, my friends, we've got to stop being reticent. We've got to stop being apologetic for asserting that the Bible is the reliable and inspired Word of God. And anyone out there or in here today who doubts the divine authorship of the Bible, start doubting your doubts. Because if you don't get the authority of the Bible and the Lordship of Jesus right, nothing else in your life is going to work well, and in the end, you will die, and you will process into an eternity without Christ and without hope. Well, let's go 
Let's go to this Psalm 22 and let's go to work on this biblical text this morning. The composition of this psalm is unusual. It's like a song. It's like a sad, mournful song, but it is sung in duet with a joyful, upbeat song. In this Psalm 22, David articulates his trouble, and then he follows it with an expression of trust in God, and he does it three times in sequence in the psalm. Trouble, trust, trouble, trust, trouble, trust, and then finally he closes the psalm on a word of triumph. But besides David's real-life experience that we're plugging into this morning, we're overhearing his prayer, we're experiencing his devotional life, along with that the Holy Spirit fuses into the text a whisper of the name of Jesus, and he forecasts the most pivotal event in human history. Now we begin the psalm by David's expression of feeling forsaken by God. So we see his statement of trouble here in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That part you probably recognize. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Here's his statement of trouble. He feels forsaken by God, but he follows that with a statement of trust. Beginning in verse 3, yet, that's the operative word here, yet, in spite of my trouble, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Now, of course, David is speaking of himself here when he cried out these words in a desperate prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we can only guess what was going on in the life of David at the time. We don't know for sure. He might have been on the run from King Saul, fleeing for his life, living off the land. He might have written this from a cave somewhere, or it might have been written on one of those dark days when he was at war with his own son, Absalom, to preserve the unity of the nation of Israel, or it might have been David's thoughts as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death that he will refer to in Psalm 23, which we'll look at next week. But regardless, he clearly felt forsaken. He clearly felt alone abandoned by God. And we also recognize these words as the words uttered by Jesus as He hung on the cross. Jesus spoke these words after three hours of unexplained and terrifying darkness had settled over the land in the middle of the day. Someone has said when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a star shone as bright as the sun in the night sky, and when He died on Calvary in the middle of the day, the sky grew dark as night and there was no sun. So, did God forsake His Son? Was Jesus actually abandoned by God when He was on the cross? Well, there are four possible ways to interpret Jesus' words here. Was it a cry of despair when He, when he cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? 
Was Jesus surprised? Was he disappointed? Did he expect to be rescued? No. No, he had already agonized in prayer about drinking this cup of suffering while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew it was coming. It was a part of him becoming sin for us on the cross, and it was the part that caused him the most dread. I don't think it was a cry of anger or despair. Was it a cry of loneliness? Well, clearly Jesus was experiencing His own dark night of the soul. His communion with the Father had been disrupted. And again, He knew it was coming, but anticipating it and experiencing it, (laughs) that's two different things. So it was the emotional feeling of being forsaken, a feeling that He had never had before. Was it a cry of victory? Undoubtedly, this psalm would have been familiar to many people who were around the cross that day. They had often heard it quoted. They would have recognized it immediately, and and they would have remembered that this psalm closes on a note of victory. So I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that his reference here was similar to his final word from the cross. It is finished, which would be better translated, I have conquered. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Familiar with the crowd who knew that that psalm closed on a note of victory? Was it a cry of prophetic acceptance? I think Jesus acknowledged in these words that the cross had been prophesied a thousand years earlier from Psalm 22 forward. It was suffering at its worst as our sinless Lord descended into the abyss of hell for us. And I submit to you, it was not momentary. There was darkness for three hours before He spoke these words. So what about you? Have you ever felt forsaken? Have you ever felt distant from God, disconnected from God? Have you ever felt lost? Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever wondered if God was really listening? If so, you're in good company. David felt it. He felt it in Psalm 22, but he did not succumb to it. He pushed back on it with trust. He meditated and reflected on God's faithfulness. And he said, in you our fathers put their trust and you delivered them. They cried to you and they were saved. In you they trusted and they were not disappointed. Who was David thinking of here? I think he might have been thinking of Noah because Noah, I'm sure, felt forsaken. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was questioned. He was challenged. As he worked alone with his wife and his sons and their wives for a hundred years to build a massive ship to escape the great global flood, something that was not believed by people in his day. But we all know how that story turned out. I think he was probably thinking of Abraham. Abraham felt forsaken. He left his secure home to go to an unknown land. He lived in tents for years. He was waiting on God while being the childless progenitor of a great nation. That had to contribute to feelings of confusion, feelings of isolation. My guess is that Abraham felt forsaken by God. But we all know how that turned out. 
Joseph must have felt forsaken, sold into slavery in a strange land as a 17-year-old boy, unjustly imprisoned for 13 years. I'm sure in his weaker moments he felt lost, alone, forgotten by God. Now, you see, these are the kinds of examples. We all know how that story turned out, too. And these are the kinds of examples that influenced David to push back on his trouble with his trust. And they're the kind of examples that should influence us not to give in to feelings of abandonment, feelings of loneliness, feelings of despair. That's what they are, subjective feelings. And when you have that kind of trouble in your life, Push back with your trust, like David. Well, he also felt forsaken by people. Take a look. He's a statement of his trouble here. David said, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So that's the way David felt. He felt forsaken by people. But look at his words of trust. Yet, yet, here's his sanity. You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast upon you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. So first, David feels forsaken by God. Then he feels forsaken by people, alienated from people. And he graphically describes it here. He says, I'm a worm and not a man. I don't know whether people have ever made you feel like that or someone has ever made you feel like that. What made him feel like a worm and not a man? Well, he says it's being scorned, being despised, being mocked, being insulted. And Jesus was likewise verbally assaulted and abused in the process of bearing His cross through the streets of Jerusalem. And hanging on the cross, He absorbed the taunts of the crowd as He died there. In fact, the words in Matthew chapter 27, verse, 30, uh, verse 39 and 43, they're almost identical to the words of Psalm 22, verse 8. Those who passed by hurled insults at him. Jesus. This is Matthew 27. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. So what about us today? Have you ever felt forsaken by people? Have you, have you noticed how things have changed in the last three to four decades? These days, respectable people are disrespected, and disrespectable people are respected. The elderly, police officers, moral leaders today, they just don't get the respect they once did. Instead, people pay attention to professional athletes. They pay attention to rock musicians. They pay attention to movie stars. So today, People like Dennis Rodman get the microphone. This is a man who occasionally dresses like a woman and whose primary contribution to society is that he played a game with a leather ball. What is he doing meeting with 
the dictator of North Korea this past week. And it's being reported on the networks. It's stunning to me that when serial killer and Satanist Richard Ramirez was finally caught and put in jail, he had swarms of groupies that rallied to support him. But when Tim Tebow publicly prays or takes a stand for sexual purity, he's ridiculed as some kind of a nut. And some of you may remember back a few years when Indiana Senator Dan Quayle advocated having both a mother and father in the home rather than the Murphy Brown model on TV. Boy, was he ever worked over by the Hollywood crowd. But anytime we're forsaken by people, anytime that we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, we need to push back with our faith, not give in to despair. If someone makes you feel like a worm, you don't curl up in a fetal position and submit to it. You do what David did. You come back with your faith. David meditated on the fact that his birth was no accident, that his life was not a random, valueless life. Look at his words, Psalm 22, verse 9, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. When David felt forsaken by people, he reminded himself that he mattered to God from the time he was conceived. And although Jesus was despised and rejected, he said, for this purpose, I came into the world. And so we must remember that our value is determined by our Creator, our Heavenly Father. Well, what about David's expression of being forsaken in death? Look at this statement of his, of his trouble. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That's an expression of his trouble. Now look at this expression of his trust. Verse 19, but, but, again, that pivotal word, but you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild ox, and I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise. In the great assembly, before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. They who seek the Lord will praise Him. Now, at this point, in Psalm 22, it looks to me like 
the Holy Spirit has taken over because David is not describing his own situation as much as he is describing in vivid detail the scene at the cross, generations into the future. I searched all of First and Second Samuel this past week. I could not find anything in David's life story that was remotely similar to what he's writing here. But I want you to look at these lines in verses 12 to 18 in this psalm that reveal the specific circumstances of the crucifixion of Jesus. He talks about bulls surround me, encircle me. That's in verse 12. I think that's a reference to the Jewish Pharisees who plotted for His death and who called for His blood. And then it refers to lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. Verse 13, I think that's a reference to the Roman soldiers who carried out the crucifixion. Dogs around me, evil men have encircled me. Verse 16, I think that's a reference to the crowd that shouted, crucify Him, crucify Him, and now it gathered to watch Jesus die. Now, listen to this description, which again is written hundreds of years before the Romans adopted crucifixion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. They've pierced my hands and my feet. Never happened to David. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Never happened to David. It happened to Jesus a thousand years later. So here we have a verbal picture of the exhaustion and suffering of the crucifixion. Jesus' joints are pulled apart from hours of hanging on the cross. He's dehydrated and thirsty. He's suffocating. His heart is ruptured. So how did David express his trust in God in his hour of being forsaken in death? Well, he prayed. He exercised his trust in God in prayer. He said, oh, Lord, be not far off. Come quickly to help me deliver my life. Rescue me. Save me. And so we should take note here. And we should pray. And we should have praying people pray for us. We're, we, when we're in the middle of a medical emergency or we're waiting on test results or we're facing or recovering from ser serious surgery or we're suffering with some serious undiagnosed condition or we have been diagnosed as terminally ill. Prayer is not out of place in such moments. In fact, it is out of place not to pray. And I prayed in the hospital beside the bed of dying people from our church family. I prayed the last two days and nights off and on with my dad, the last two nights of his life. And we pray at the front of this worship center at the end of every one of our four services every weekend because some of our folks are dealing with life-threatening issues. When you feel forsaken in death, pray. And make sure your prayers are balanced with both petition and praise. Because David also said here, I will declare your name to my brothers. I will praise you, verse 22. Praise him, honor him, revere him, verse 23. So it is petition when we feel forsaken in death. And it is, it is praise. 
That's how we exercise our trust. And now this psalm takes a decidedly different turn away from being forsaken, feeling forsaken by God, away from being forsaken by people, away from being forsaken in death, and this psalm closes on a note of victory. Look at this word of triumph. Psalm 22, verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before Him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All who go down to the dust will kneel before Him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. That's all of us in this room, by the way. Posterity will serve Him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. The powerful psalm closes with a, a declaration of conquest. It is clearly prophetic. It doesn't have anything to do with David's life. The Holy Spirit is taken over. And in these moments, the veil is pulled back for us to see what's to come in the kingdom of God. These constant cycles of trouble and trust in this life, these feelings of being forsaken, will all be swallowed up in the triumph of the gospel in the ages to come. All the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow before Him. Dominion belongs to the Lord. He will rule over the nations. All who go down to the dust will kneel before Him. Posterity will serve Him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. And then this, at the very end, for He has done it. Well, is that true? I think it's still in process. We're committed to this mission here at the end of Psalm 22. But it says here, for He has done it. What does that mean? Well, that means that with God, a thing promised is as good as a thing done. Our ultimate triumph over trouble is a done deal. If you're a child of God, it's been accomplished. He has done it. We're following through. We're carrying it out. But we know what the end is. David's Psalm 22 reveals the cross of Jesus Christ, reveals to us that it has a purpose. He was forsaken so that you and I would never feel forsaken. So that when we go through our own personal dark night of the soul, when we experience pain and tragedy and humiliation and loss, we would know God is near. He's a very present help in time of trouble. John R.W. Stott writes, I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. The God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. But in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the real world. But each time I have had to turn away, and in my imagine I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, 
plunged into God-forsaken darkness. This is the God for me. This is my God. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us, and our sufferings are more manageable and have purpose in light of His. David said prophetically in Psalm 22, verse 29, all who go down to the dust will kneel before Him. And the Apostle Paul would write centuries later, Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All who go down to the dust will kneel before Him. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, I want to ask you this morning in the light of Psalm 22, have your knees bowed yet? Has your tongue confessed yet? Have you believed on Him? Have you repented of your sin? Have you met Him in the waters of Christian baptism? Are you counted among the faithful in His church?